Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. This is Series 2. We're featuring At Length conversations with some of the visiting scholars and authors and artists who come to Town Hall Seattle in 2017 and 2018. Our irrational behavior interferes with our best efforts to curb spending, increase our savings. Dan Ariely has come up with some rules of thumb that can help us make better decisions. Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter, is co-written with lawyer and comedian Jeff Chrysler. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. He is the author of research articles and books, including Predictably Irrational, and the honest truth about dishonesty. Ariely's insights go beyond budgets and spending. Ariely studied philosophy before turning to psychology. His research extends into exploring the reasons people behave in ways that are counter to their own interests and to the maintenance of a strong civil society. Hello, hello. Hello, Professor. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, my pleasure. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very well. I'm taking a class through Duke University. Oh, you are? Which class? Uh, documenting One City Block. It's part of the Center for Documentary Studies. It's an amazing center. Are you? Is the class good? It's very good. It's helping me write an article that I've been working on for a while, and uh, it makes me want to uh, take the whole program. That's great. Are you doing all the homework, I, all the assignments? I am, and that, of course, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> What's going to yeah. motivate me to do it when I don't have to? Uh, yeah, but, but, we... Um, we did an analysis of my own Coursera class a few years ago. And in that class, we had students graded other people's papers. Mm. Right? That's how it works. And what we found were that students who graded very good papers were more likely to drop the class. <laughs> so what happened is they realized how good other students could be and they got demotivated. Well, I understand that. I get a, I'm getting a little bit of that. So what was what was the uh, what was a better approach then? What was something that would keep people mo- unless you want to get rid of the students who don't think they're very good? What's a better approach? No, no, you don't. But 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 it does it does tell you something about how people form expectations, <clears throat> and if they think they can't reach that, they they give hope, uh, they give up on hope. So, um, so, so one one question is how do you get people to be motivated in in a class when they know that it's max they can get a C, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Is this sufficiently motivated? In a class like Coursera, where it's so easy to drop off, that's very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the easy solution is don't let people grade good papers. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That, that are above them. But, but I think the other issue would be to just basically get people to be comfortable with whatever level of performance they are aiming for, uh, don't make uh, external attributions about, you know, you, you, uh, internal attribution, like you, you're just not good. Instead, basically say, you know, different people have different amounts of time and so on to dedicate to that. So there could have been some other mechanisms. Um, all right. You wrote something in this book about how thinking about money literally messes with our heads. Well, mm-hmm. In what ways? How is it literally messing with our heads? Well, in in all kinds of ways, there's really a lot of a lot of research on this. But um, maybe some of the most interesting ones is that when you um, think about money, people become more selfish, right? So imagine imagine experiment. Uh, you walk by a person, and that person drops some pencils, and you can either help them or you could decide to keep on walking and let them deal with the problem by themselves. 
once you've been exposed to money, thinking about money, discussing money, uh, the odds are higher that you will be uh, more selfish. Or imagine another experiment. Uh, you, you're collaborating with somebody. And you can either ask them for advice or you could try to uh, do it on your own. If the problems are financial in nature, you're more likely to do it alone, less likely to, to ask for advice. So, so, so money, money does lots of things to us. Just thinking about money uh, yeah. changes us. What, but, what? No, you go ahead. But, but there's, another, <laughs> there's another level, which is that uh, there are different ways to represent money, right? So cash is not the same as credit cards, and credit cards is not the same as Apple Pay, and, and uh, paying your mortgage uh, is different than paying other bills, and uh, the, the way you think about your credit card statement has specific characteristics, and, and money, money can be represented in different ways, and the ways that they're represented differently actually get them to, um, get us to behave differently. And I, I'll, I'll just think about one, one thought. This is a thought that is really uh, bothering me, or you know, not bothering, but I'm thinking a lot about this. So a thousand years ago, how did people save? Basically with goats, right, mm -hmm. or chickens, or whatever it is, right? A, a thousand years ago, um, if, if you were saving, it was saving in, in property, right? In property that, that you could see and other people could see and would bear fruit and so on. Now, imagine that a thousand years ago, you come home from work, and you look at your neighbors, and you see that your neighbor has three more goats than you do. At that moment, you feel like having more goats, right? We are competitive people. We would compete on anything as long as you can measure and count it. And you see that your neighbor has more goats, you want more goats. Over time, we invented money, and then we invented digital money. And this whole realm of activity called savings became invisible. On the other hand, what has become more visible? Spending. Right. It used to be that spending was just food and so on, which we, you, your neighbors don't see. Now it's cars and, you know, loans and uh, how you decorated your home and so on. So so what happens when you take a huge part of our activity called saving and you make it invisible, you make it invisible for the person, for their family, for society and you take other things like spending and you make them extra visible to the person, their families, and their, and their neighbors, to society, all of a sudden you're changing the priorities of society, right? So, so imagine, imagine what would happen <coughs> if we had some kind of representation of goats, right? That, that we would have, the, I don't know, maybe an abacus, a big, a big uh, thing on your yard that would tell us generally how many years have you been maximizing your 401k, right? Maybe we don't want to say the exact amount that you've been doing it, but maybe we're saying and maybe we have a, an extra flag for have you opened college savings accounts for your kids and, and so on. Now you can start getting people to compete on other things as well. So, so, so I, think, I think what we need to do is to really think about how is the representation of money going to influence how people think about money and therefore, how they're going to behave with it. You mentioned that um, 
for this like this idea of collaboration with somebody on financial issues. We don't talk about money with our friends or our relatives because well, it's a taboo. So is that a taboo that and it's a taboo that seems like um, a, a rational taboo, like that it arose out of something cultural. So should we? Yeah. Do we need to shift it? We we also need to shift that. There's no question. By the way, it's it's an American it's an American issue. In other countries, uh, people ask. I remember when I um, I graduated from grad school in '98, uh, uh, a little while ago, and uh, I grew up in Israel. <clears throat> so so um, in April, uh, I, I already knew I was going to be a professor uh, the following year at MIT, and I went for Passover back to Israel. And we sit in this big Passover dinner, and my aunt is all the way across the table, and she shouts at me. She says, "So, how much does a starting professor at MIT make these days?" And it's a perfectly reasonable question in the Israeli culture, because you know you just ask people. And and by the way, in Israel, when you ask people about the salary, they don't tell you the gross; they tell you the net, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the after taxes income. You know, that's what people want to know. And so. Um, and of course, in the U.S., you don't even know what your net income is. Um, and you know, I, I've, by that time, I think I've been in the U.S. for too long because it was it was tough for me to to answer for a few seconds. Eventually, eventually, I answered. But uh, there was somebody in the Atlantic that wrote a few months ago that uh, American men are um, feel more comfortable talking about whether they take Viagra than whether they had credit card debt. But but the reality is that. The financial industry is an industry that enjoys a tremendous amount of asymmetry of information. When, when you go to your bank, financial advisor, they know lots of things that we don't know as individuals. And the only way to know is to start talking about this. Otherwise, right, you have somebody who knows a lot, a lot of people who don't talk to each other. You're at the mercy of the people who know who know something so we have we have 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 to start talking to each other is there any evidence that those cultures where people talk about savings like israel have a higher savings rate i i don't i don't think there's any evidence for this and it's very hard to create a causal mechanism because you know cultures are different in so many ways <laughs> um and and there's lots of reasons for for saving right so for example but but there is there are some evidence uh, that some cultures the parents tell their kids what to do. Hmm. So so my experience in the U.S. is that uh, parents are you know parents until the kids are 18 or maybe 22, and then they say you're on your own, right? You're a grown person. You it's it's your decision. When other cultures uh, think about uh, Japan, China, Italy, parents give the kids rules. They say, when you get paid, 30% goes to savings. Now, it might not be ideal, right? It might not be an ideal number, but they give them a rule of, of what to do, and that rule is incredibly helpful, right? Comparing to having no rule and just do whatever you, you feel like. And, and we do have evidence that cultures that have these, these norms do save more. You uh, talked about you, you mentioned the financial industry, and I was thinking about the advertisements that have arisen in the financial industry on television, which appear to encourage 
us to save. You know, there's an orange line you can follow and you're on the right track is one. I think there's a green line too. But you also talk about value cues and irrelevant mm-hmm. value cues. So just in, with those two concepts, what's what's at play with those sorts of advertisements? Yeah. So, so first of all, I think that the advertisement that advertise savings are, you know, people have their heart in the right place, right? Also their incentives, right? It's the saving industry that, that advertise savings. It's not the credit cards that are doing it, right? It's the, it's the, it's a different, uh, but, but I think that it's good that they're doing it. The, the problem is that advertisements as a way to create saving, there's a, there's a huge gap mm. between them. Um, look, the, we have lots of intentions that go awry. I'll give you an example for one experiment. This is not an experiment about saving, but you take a group of people and you give half of them a lecture about the importance of getting vaccination for the flu. And 3% of the people go. You take another group, you give them the same lecture, but you also ask them to open their calendar and write down when they're going to go. Now 26% of the people go. What's the difference? It's not the intentions, it's the follow through. And, And the reality is that if we want to get people to save, it's not enough to get people to know that they're saving. Like if you go now to Americans and you say, are you saving enough? How many people are going to say, oh yes, I, I didn't think about it up to now, but now that you're telling me this, I'm realizing I'm not saving enough. Let me run to the bank and start a different saving saving plan. Um, it's awareness is not enough. We need to do much more than that. So that, that's on one, on one side. Uh, on the other side, we have the spending industry. Right, and and the thing about the spending industry is that it's all around us. So, so one of the the concept in behavioral economics is that we make decisions as a function of the environment that is around us. Now, now think about our environment is apps and coffee shops and so on. Now, think to yourself, what is your environment wants from you? Mm-hmm. Which of those entities in your immediate environment? cares about your long-term well-being nobody yeah right yeah maybe your significant other maybe your kids maybe your employer but but most of those entities want you to buy another cup of coffee today or another app today or spend a bit more time watching ads to buy something else right so so they all have a different incentive than than we do and they're trying to derail us, right? I mean, this is the capitalistic system. The capitalistic system is really a struggle between you as an individual who care about your long-term well-being and almost everybody around you who has a very different goal, right? If, if uh, you as a human being don't care about quarterly earnings, right. but Dunkin' Donuts does. <laughs> and they know things that you don't, and their goal is kind of to get you to buy another donut this quarter, right? Not, not for you to be wealthier so you can buy more, more donuts. <clears throat> so they use all kinds of things. And, and you asked a question about value cues. And, and what, what value cues are really kind of our mechanism by which we assess what something is worth. And... Think about you know, a million years ago in nature. 
And apple was an apple and orange was an orange. And, you know, that's how nature designed them and so on. Now, if you a million years ago had a marketing group working on an apple and working on an orange, right, and you would allow them to do all kinds of tricks, maybe they would inflate, put more air in the orange, right? They would have separated the layer between the, the peel and the thing so it looked bigger. Maybe they would have worked on the color. Maybe they would certainly have worked on the aroma, right? They would, they would have been apple marketing geniuses and orange marketing geniuses, and, and they would have done all kinds of things that don't change the essence necessarily of the apple and orange, but give us a sense that we're getting something more, that is more appealing, more enticing, uh, better. So, so value cues often have their roots in something that is inherently useful, but they can also be misused for a particular purpose. Um, a f- funny example is, what do you think is going to be better wine? Uh, wine coming from Wyoming or from California? Right, I'm going to say California, because that's what yeah, I've learned. Yeah. That, that's right. And, and not only that, if you pour people the same wine and you tell some people it's coming from New Jersey, it's just not going to be as good. Right, as the California wine, you expect it to be better, and therefore you're experiencing it as better. So you, the, a lot of this book, Dollars and Cents, is about those uh, managing expectations, uh, understanding where we're irrational. What are some well, – let's stick with managing expectations for a minute. What are some rules by which we can control our, our, uh, our gut and be more mm-hmm. rational in our thinking? Yeah. So, so first of all, we need to recognize it's tough. But right, but but I'll give you one uh, one example for this. So so we show that free gets us to be irrationally overexcited, right? When when we call something free, people drive extra long distances, even if it costs them a lot of money. Uh, we we get too much of it, right? If it's a free buffet, we overeat. I mean, we do all kinds of things <laughs> that are called free. So so a trick. Uh, one of the things you could say is every time something is called free, reframe it in your mind to saying it's cost 25 cents. <laughs> right? And, yeah. and now say, oh, you know, they have this uh, not free Ben. So, so you know, ben, free Ben and Jerry's ice cream, people stand an hour for to wait for it. It's $1.25. Right? What if we said, would you, st- would you send an hour uh, waiting for for f- to, to buy an ice cream cone for 25 cents, right? Most people say, of course not. <clears throat> so, so in that particular case, what you could say is free is a hot button. It's a trigger. What can I do to not experience free? Uh, free frame it at a very low cost and see if my behavior would change. That's, that's an example. Hmm. Or, or another example comes from uh, anchoring. Uh, anchoring is a very powerful phenomena. It's the fact that when we make decisions, we are married to our past decisions. So the new iPhone is coming out. How do we figure out how much is it worth? Well, we compare it to the old prices of iPhones. And if it's dramatically more expensive, we think it's expensive if it's less. But but the reality is, is that we should actually compare the price of an iPhone to a week-long vacation that, that we could take. That's where the opportunity cost is coming from or, you know, buying a stereo system or a new laptop. But 
but what we do is we compare the iPhone to, to past decisions we've made about other other iPhones and the, the where it's coming from. Uh, this, by the way, like uh, people who are going to buy the new iPhone 10X, whatever it's called, and are going to spend dramatically more money from this, they're probably committing themselves to start spending more money on phones moving forward, right? Because let's say, I don't know how much it is, but let's just say for fun that the regular iPhone is $800 and the new, this new special iPhone will be $1,800. <clears throat> Right. If it's going to be $1,800, you're not just buying it once. What you're actually doing is getting on a hedonic treadmill in which you'll keep on spending $1,800 on it. Because in, in a year from now, you would not ask yourself, what's the value of an iPhone? You would ask yourself, what did I spend on iPhones before? You say $1,800. That must mean that it's a reasonable thing to spend $1,800 on iPhone, let me continue doing this again. So, so what anchoring shows us is that we take past decisions and we make them as starting point for our future decisions. And, and we do need to, 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 to fight it in two ways. First of all, we need to understand that if you make a decision, it's not just one decision, it might stay with you for longer. If you buy an extra expensive car, go on an extra expensive vacation, buy an extra expensive phone, this will stay with you for a while, right? It will become part of your repertoire of decisions. And, and the second thing is when we come to make future decisions, we need to try and shake that anchor away and try to approach decisions with, with a broader approach. It's easier to say, I did this before, let me just do it again. But it's wiser to think about what's the opportunity cost? Is this worth it? And can do you... Do you find people doing that? I mean, part of the reason you're writing this is because you want to change behavior. Yeah. So, so the answer is yes, but it's not easy, mm. right? So, so think about three types of decisions. There's little decisions, buying coffee. Uh, there are medium decisions, buying a digital camera, iPhone, something like that. And then there's huge decisions, buying a house, having kids. Um, on on the huge decisions, those are decisions people usually stop and think. Not necessarily the right way, but people stop and think. And on the medium decision, I think it's the place where people could gain the most benefit. Right? <laughs> the little decisions, I think it's, the, it's kind of, um, there, there are two versions of this. So I think it's very hard, and I would hate for people to stop before every cup of coffee and ask themselves, is this really worth it and so and or not? However, little decisions also become part of our habits. And, and while I don't want people to suffer, right? I mean, life is not about suffering and about really debating the opportunity cost of every cup of coffee. I think people should think about those categories, let's say once a year. Once a year, you should say, let me think about my strategy of going out. Let me think about my strategy of buying food in the supermarket. Let me think about my strategy of buying coffee. And let me, let me see if I want to change something about that strategy. Make a decision once for the whole year and then try to live by it. Try to live by it. That's the hard part, though, right? That's, Trying that's to live the hard by it. part, yes. Yeah. You, you know, you, you wrote this book with a, 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 a lawyer and comedian. And uh, well, I don't think he would want to be called lawyer, but he, he, he has a law degree. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
It says on the, on the back of the book, it says, is a lawyer turned comedian. So how's yes. that? I'll call him a comedian. Yeah. Um, because a message with humor is more likely to be heard? <laughs> so, no. Um, it, it's because I really like Jeff. Uh, so uh, Jeff wrote a previous book on uh, how to get rich cheating. Mm-hmm. And I really love that book. And he used to uh, present this book in, in comedy clubs. And then, of course, people knew it was a comedy act. Uh, but I invited him to come to my classes. And I didn't tell people he was a comedian. I told him he was a, an advisor to some of the most successful CEOs in the country. And he would go with his stick of his stand-up comedy. But, but he would get people to realize that in the U.S., we punish people greatly for stealing pizza. You know, if they steal three pizzas three times in California, they could go to prison for life. But people who steal millions of dollars in banking don't really get punished. And and he, he would go with this um, shtick of saying the easiest way to get rich is to just cheat. Look look at all the things that is happening to all these people who are stealing so much money. He said, don't, don't do something stupid like stealing a slice of pizza here or there, but the, the real, you know, going to banking. Anyway, and then, of course, he takes it too far and people realize it's, it's humorful and so on, but, but we use it in class to talk about ethics. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, I, he came to my class a few years ago and I really, really like Jeff. And uh, my, my rule in life is to uh, work with people I love. So, so when, we, when we started together, we didn't know what we'll do together. We just knew that we have to do something together. And uh, we tried, and th- this is it. But it didn't start with with a plan uh, of a particular thing. It started with saying, "We like each other. Let's let's do something together." Where did the idea of of dollars and cents arise from that? What was the common theme that both of you had going forward? Yeah. So, so I think both of us wanted to write something that would uh, help people do something better. And, and right now, lots of the research in my lab is about that. Uh, we, uh, we have a very large initiative when we help mostly people with lower middle income, uh, spend less, save more. And, and we have a lot of data and lots of experiments uh, on this. So when we were thinking about, okay, now that we know we want to do together what we want to do together, um, we have kind of a vast amount of knowledge in this in this domain, and it's also clear how much people fail on this. So it was it was a really good fit with what the lab was doing, what the research uh, was saying, the kind of information that we thought would be would be helpful, and then and then we got uh, going for this. And and by the way, the the profits from the the book, everything goes back to research. So it's not uh, it's not an endeavor of, of Jeff and me. It's it's, a, it's an attempt to uh, circle the money back into research and uh, hopefully fund more things and find more interesting findings. I see. What are you finding from your uh, from your lab in terms of helping people uh, save more? Common sense, you know the 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 common sense yep. lab. What 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 exactly. tactics are you giving folks to as they move forward? So, so there's lots, lots of tactics because there's lots of ways to mess things up, but I'll give you a couple of those. Um, so first of all, it turns out that a monthly budget is not the right tool. 
it's too long, right? If you're on the first of the month and your budget is for a month, very hard to figure it out, right? So people overspend and then you get to the end of the month and you've overspent, so you might as well continue. And a weekly budget turns out to be at around the right scale, right? Where you could have the amount of money for a week, you see it depleting, you can actually think about some trade-offs you're making. If I have a big dinner here, I will not do something else. And there are nuances to this. So for example, what do you think? Would it be better to start your weekend on Monday or on Friday? Just before the weekend or have the weekend at the end? Well, I, I mean, I would think it would be Monday, but I might be tempted for Friday because then I'd have more money on the weekend. So, so, so you're right that Monday is a better approach. Why? Because if you start on Friday, you way overspend too quickly and then you run out. If you start on Monday, you have the weekend as a goal to save for and people, and people pace themselves in, in a much better way. So just creating a budget doesn't guarantee you'll stick to it. But if you'll start it on Monday, it's it's a much easier much easier thing. Um, so so that's uh, that's one example. Um, we we did this also with with very low income people uh, who get food stamps, and uh, in the U.S. people get their food stamps uh, once once a month, and we of course ask the question if that's the right thing to do, and the answer is no. We wish people would have gotten it once a week, but they don't. So we can't change, I mean, it's, it's hard to change how the government functions. So instead, what we try to do is we said, what if we show them on an app? We took, we took the monthly food stamps, but we divided it by four, four components and tried to get them to think about it as weekly. Turns out we can get people to change their spending. All of a sudden, they slow down. They don't spend it all immediately. Now, they don't, it doesn't last the whole month. But we do get people, it, it, it stretches out. What, what do you mean it doesn't last the whole month? You mean they still run out of money because it's not enough anyways? Or? That's right. That's right. They still run out of, but, but they, they, uh, it, it does last longer, right? So they don't have this big spike in the beginning on all kinds of things that they shouldn't be spending, and it, it lasts <laughs> last longer. So, you know, the, the, one of the things we're finding, and one of the reasons that in common sense we're thinking about a lot about technology is that technology is kind of a key to either get us to overspend or to think better about money, right? So if you think about um, Apple Pay, is, is Apple Pay getting people to think better about money or not as much? Yeah, no. It, it's not, not as much. It's like a credit card. Yeah. Oh, it's actually worse. It's worse than right? a credit card. It's, it's really because you don't have to take it out, right? Or, or think about the new store that Amazon is planning. Oh, where you just walk in and then walk out and everything's tabulated, yeah. That's right. So, so imagine, yeah, I'm just giving you kind of an extreme case. Imagine you have this uh, store in which you just go in and go out and we charge you once a year, right? Imagine what, what the size of the bills um, would be. So, so we think that right now most of the technology is not designed to help people spend better. It's actually designed to get people to spend more. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. But we don't think it has to be like this. And we're very interested in helping people uh, actually think better. Are you now? I'll give, uh, oh, sorry. No, you give me another example and then I'll ask. I'll, I'll give you a very different example. Uh, there's, there's a beautiful research that shows that when you open for kids uh, college savings accounts on the day that they are born, 
uh, they perform better already at age four. Right. And, and what happens there, it's not that four year old kids know that they have a college savings account, is that the parents who get the statement are reminded that their kids are headed to college in many years and they treat them slightly better. So with this, with this knowledge, we managed to convince the Israeli government to open a college saving account for each kid born in Israel from January 2017. And, uh, and now we're working on improvement of that, right? So we're saying, for example, okay, so now we have a college savings account for each, each kid. And, and when we started this, people said, why don't just reduce the cost of college? Mm-hmm. Because it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing to reduce it at the end. It's all about the mindset for 18 years. You want people to have the mindset for 18 years, I'm going to go to college you don't want just to decrease the price at the end, right? Money is not just money. It could be about mindset. But now, for example, we're working on what should be the, how do you report to parents about this? And of course, the way we want to report to parents is just before uh, the new semester starts, right? Because that's the time that we want the parents to help the kids uh, prepare for school, be motivated, energetic about it and set up in the right way for success. Don't you also do some work where the parents themselves are advertising their efforts with their with their children or are part of that process and that also enhances the value? Absolutely. So so uh, parents parents do take tremendous pride in parenting. Um, and in this particular case, we saw a lot of activity of parents to parents. So the parents themselves are a great um, amplifier of that initiative. You know, you um, you were talking in, in another book and another talk. You talked about um, norms. You're talking about cheating in one thing, and it got me thinking about. Uh, you also talked about golf and whether CEOs. Their corporate performance improves. You know, they say it improves because they're doing business, but the study shows the exact opposite. And it got me thinking about norms and social norms and what's acceptable. And I'm just going to veer a little bit into politics here because because uh, we take a step down. All right, it'll be it'll be it'll be short. We we uh, the language that we talk around President Trump is his critics say he's normalizing certain behaviors, but I wasn't yeah. always sure what that meant. But um, in some of the experiments you talked about, especially in terms of the cheating experiments, where uh, where you would have different cohorts that would get together, and if they were if somebody would stand up and announce basically they were cheating, if they were part of that same cohort, other people would cheat. If they were part of the opposite cohort, cheating would decrease. Is that a similar thing we're seeing when we talk about social norms being changed by uh, behavior, current behavior? Absolutely. So um, not too long ago, uh, kind of when the elections were happening, I looked at all advertisements. And all advertisements were unbelievably demeaning to women. It was really shocking to see, you know, Volkswagen ads saying, you know, she always gets into accident, gets her this, you know, Volkswagen Beetle or, you know, things, things, things like that. Or, and women would lie on the floor of the, this looking lovingly at her husbands. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that had a very different uh, relationship. And, and this was ad, these were ads, which meant at the time it was appealing to what we thought was normal and standard and, and so on. 
And the reality is that how do you create a sense of what is appropriate and inappropriate is by the things that we see around us. And every time, okay, and then on top of that, we pay much more attention to deviant behavior than to the standard behavior. If you drive on the highway, you pay attention to people who are speeding. Like, you know, it could be that 5% of the people are speeding, but it would look to you like everybody is speeding, right? We pay attention to the people who deviate from the norm, and they get to define an, a new norm and what it's about. So, so when you think about political discourse, for example, uh, when you think about how to have a political debate uh, is another one, when you think about how important is the truth, all of those are, are questions about what do we accept in society. And, and the thing about this is that for, for many of those things, we have a slippery slope. We know the way down. It's very tough to get the way up. Right. So, so think about the next elections. From what state of honesty would the next election start? Yeah. Right. What what would be accepted as as normal? Right. Uh, what kind of name calling is acceptable in society? What what are race relationships that are acceptable? Um, what what do we expect in terms of apologies? Uh, taking responsibility, right? All of those questions are questions that are coming from what we think is normal, normal, not from the, the like desired uh, b- behavior, right? Think about, you know, J- Japanese leaders who make a mistake and commit suicide, right? That that's it's an accepted, you know, was right. was accepted that if you made a mistake. Uh, you, it, it, it could be so devastating to your honor, and your honor is more important than than your life, and that's a higher value. And this is how you basically make up for it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that in our society now? It's not that the Japanese have a you know very different DNA. It's a cultural standard of what is acceptable way of behavior and what's not. Well, you, you also talked in those experiments that you did on cheating, you also found that if you gave people a, a, a push, recall the Ten Commandments, sign the honor code, that you would decrease cheating. Yes. Um, by the same token, does that, does that imply, or is there science to tell us that a, an approach by a candidate, if we're sticking with the elections, that would focus on those positives could shift the balance or are too many other negative factors in play? Yeah. So, so what we found in this result is getting people to recite the Ten Commandments or sign the honor code and so eliminated cheating, not just decrease it, eliminated cheating. But, but that's because uh, honesty was important to people, right? So, so we cheat a little bit, we drive slightly over the speed limit, we underreport our age a little bit on online dating sites, right? We cheat, we cheat a little bit. But when we think about it, we all of a sudden care more about it, and then we change behavior. The, the thing about normative changes is that it's like corruption. Mm. Uh, when, when, a, when a standard in society changes, um, like let's say there are countries when it's okay to bribe a, a public official, it's not that people don't know it's illegal. They just don't care. 
right? So, so what happened? What happened with corruption and what happened with norms is that in 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 a, in a country that is corrupt, the only thing that stops people is the fear of being caught. In a country that is not corrupt, people also have their own moral conscience. And, and the moral conscience come from what is acceptable in society. How do we behave here? And, and if we get to a society, I don't know, Kenya, where it's okay to bribe a policeman who catches you speeding, getting people in those countries to recite the Ten Commandments wouldn't do anything. Because it's not about their own morality, it's just this is how business is done. Right? So 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 part of the fear that I have is that we're changing what is acceptable. And and when you change what is acceptable, reminders don't don't help. I'll give you another example. Um, lots of people have uh, illegal download material in their computers. And people don't feel bad about it. Now, if you get people to recite the Ten Commandments, they don't download illegal content less because it's not perceived by them to be immoral, right? So, so we, we human beings, we have this amazing thing called the conscious. And conscious, um, you know, is, is, is kind of, you can think of it like guilt, right? Where you basically, it doesn't matter if anybody is watching you, not watching you, it's, you have your, you know, Jewish mother sitting sitting there and saying, you just don't behave like this. It could be four o'clock in the morning. It's a red light. Nobody is around, but we we stop and wait or whatever it is. And and the thing the thing is that the way we get our conscience and we get this this voice in our head of what is acceptable and not acceptable is from what is acceptable and not acceptable in society. And and if we if we don't see signals of honesty and honor and good behavior, we lose that voice in our head, and and that's something that is going to be really hard to get back. Are there is there any evidence from any society where they have come back from a a, a, a state of of a slide and returned? I mean, was is Germany and its recognition of its history is that an example of where a state uh, inculcated different values into its citizenry. I think I, I, I think Germany is an interesting case. I think that, the, that maybe the most interesting one is South Africa, ah. with the Truth and Reconciliation Act, right? Where they basically had this day of reckoning when not day, but you know, a period of reckoning when people stood on stage and said, "Here's all the awful things I've done," and uh, and and it doesn't erase it, but I think that's that's part of this. I think Colombia has gone through some tremendously interesting changes, right? Um, uh, the way that they're dealing with the guerrilla war and so on. So, so it, it's incredibly difficult. Possible, but incredibly difficult. Why is this work personally important to you? I, I look at the world, and I, I think that most of our challenges are man-made. Right? If I think about kind of waste, human waste, waste of human potential... I think we waste our time, money, health, energy, or the environment, and and hate. Those are the big, the big five as far as I'm concerned. And you know, from time to time there's a hurricane, from time to time there's a, some some other catastrophe. But but most of the things we do to ourselves, and it's just such a shame. 
right? And and what I what I want to do is to try to understand those things. Some some I think we can understand better. Some are going to be more difficult. Some we can fight. Some are more difficult. But but my hope is to try and understand those things and see which one of them we can not eliminate but reduce, right? And and that's that's my hope. And 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 you know, in some sense, it's a very sad perspective of life because I I see all of these all of those things that are really miserable, but but it's optimistic as well because I I do see some improvements out there. Not all the time, and sometimes you get you know a substantial blow to progress, but 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 I do think that we understood correctly uh, the drivers of human behavior in nature. We could do better. What was the aha moment that said? Man, I I think I need to really dig down to these ideas. So, so there were many there were many moments like this, um, and and some of them were personal experiences, and some of them were research. Uh, but but I'll tell you one one thing that happened to me after my first book. So my first book was published about ten years ago. It was called Predictably Irrational. And a few months after writing this book, I sit on the flight uh, next to a woman that I don't know. And she tells me that uh, she was a diabetic patient and she was debating with herself if to install an insulin pump uh, or not. And she told me that she, she read my book and she was in her mind debating with me whether I would have told her to do it or not, right? So she was thinking about the research on procrastination and hyperbolic discounting and so on. And she came to the conclusion that it would be good to install an insulin pump, and she asked me if I agree with her, the argument she made on my behalf, and so on, which which I did, and 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 that was that was an amazing moment for me because I realized that people, uh, some people, right, take take something, they, they read something, and they think about how to incorporate into their lives and how to make decisions in a better in a better way. So, my. My attempt, you know, to do research and talk to governments and so on is is one thing because I think it's a it's a way to 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 help. But but my hope with books is that people would take those things and think about how they apply to their own lives. Right? I, I don't want people just to read it for entertainment or education. I'm I'm hoping that people would look at read something and say, This is a place where I make this mistake. I can see this mistake or I can see how it applies to my own life and try to do something slightly better. Appreciate you taking the time. Very good. Thanks so much for doing it, and we'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Dan Ariely. His newest book is Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. It's co-written with Jeff Chrysler. Thanks for listening to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. If you have any comments, send me an email, sscher at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, Stephen underscore share. Talk to you again.